0: We live in a world that tells you the more you possess, the happier you will be. But we know possessions never satisfy, yet we still want more. Today's guest, T.K. Coleman, is going to help educate us on how living with less is truly more and how it helps you to be a superior version of yourself. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Catholic Gentleman Podcast. Uh, we are your co-hosts, Sam Griesman and John Heinen. And uh, we are very honored today to have a uh, very sharp, very uh, wise and, uh, and uh, intelligent guest with us, uh, T.K. Coleman, who whose wit and wisdom reminds me a lot of my other friend, uh, G.K. Chesterton. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if the similarity in names uh, is intentional or not, but uh, yeah, they do remind me of each other quite a bit. And uh uh, but but before we go any further, I'll just introduce TK briefly, in case you haven't heard of him. TK Coleman is the Education Director at FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, where he creates workshops and curricula designed to teach the value of economic literacy and entrepreneurial thinking to students of <clears throat> all ages, a very valuable pursuit. Um, but also, he's maybe better known as a, a co-host of the very popular uh, podcast uh the minimalists uh and he was also in the netflix documentary uh less is now which was also hosted by the minimalists um, but really it's all uh, the podcast is all about this idea of living with less um and not even more than that maybe living intentionally living intentionally in a culture that is trying to constantly distract us from what's most important in life uh, and, and I know, TK, you're incredibly passionate about encouraging others to kind of let go of those things that keep them from living a truly uh, flourishing and meaningful life. Uh, so truly an honor. Welcome, TK. Thank you for being with us.
2: Hey, it's an honor to be here, guys.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we, we talked about, you know, you're kind of uh, very well known for being uh, kind of out there in the minimalist space and all you've been doing. Uh, symposiums and and conferences and things with with the minimalists who are uh, Joshua Fields, Milburn and um, uh, (laughs) Ryan Nicodemus. Okay, I had a uh, brain lapse there. But yeah, they've been doing, they've been promoting minimalism in the culture for over a decade now, I believe. And they have a compelling story to go with that. And, you know, I've been following them for years. But your name kept popping up more and more. And then very recently, they kind of invited you to come on as a full-time co-host uh, and kind of promoter. But a lot of people hear this word minimalism and they think of like bare white walls and, mm. uh, you know, uh, stark and maybe a little cold and like just just emptiness, you know, like uh, it's kind of... And, and yet other people see it as a very attractive option, an alternative to our culture of consumerism. So I guess just to get started, what attracted you to... The minimalist lifestyle. And uh, how did you get to know uh, Ryan and Joshua and kind of become a part of what they're up to?
2: Yeah. So the interesting thing about, oh, by the way, I got to back up for a second because you mentioned uh, GK. So uh, th- where TK came from, my first name is actually tacoa and it's from the book of Amos, Amos chapter one, verse one. Oh. And it's it's the land where the prophet Amos was from. And my mom named me after that, that place in northern Judea. Wow. And when I was in college, so my middle name is La Prince because my mom went on an L.A. kick with uh, her boys and their middle names. So there's Donald, Lamar, Gerald, LaShawn, um, Tacoa La Prince. And oh. so I've always gone by Tacoa La Prince. And for much of my life, you'd hear people call me that or they call me Tekoa or they call me Le Prince. And so when I got to college, um, this guy that I was friends with, he would say, um, by the time I finish saying your name, I can just spell it out. He goes T-E-K-O-A is a lot faster to spell than to actually say. And so he started calling me T-E-K-O-A. And then that got shortened to T K O. And, uh, and then eventually that got shortened to TK. So sort it's of <laughs> become a term of endearment. So th- there's nothing flattering and philosophical about the, the name TK. That's just how it came about. It's taken a minimalist
0: yeah. path of its own. How funny. That's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> but as, you know, as, how
1: as has your beard, John. That uh, has my <laughs> beard. Yeah, I used to
0: have a bigger beard, but I decided to
2: shorten that. So. I feel like there are stages of like Catholic maturity that correlate with the beard. I feel like <laughs> the, the Gandalf phase is when you get the beard. So right. <laughs> I'm a baby Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> so how did I get to know those guys? Well, interestingly enough, my good friend, Steve Patterson, who has a podcast called Patterson in Pursuit, um, where he delves into different philosophical topics, uh, wanted to have a conversation about race. And this was during the height of a lot of the conversation that was happening around police brutality and black lives matter and all that kind of stuff and he says let's have a discussion it's just like getting into the philosophy of race and Steve and I must have had maybe like 6 hours worth of conversation on all things race and it was a fun conversation you know we're having it as friends and we're looking at it from from different angles than a lot of the stuff that's that's often talked about in in, in mainstream where everything is so politicized and uh Joshua saw that conversation and, you know, thought it was interesting and decided to have me on as a guest. And at that time, we just talked about education in school because of the, the work that I was doing at that time with an apprenticeship program, helping, you know, aspiring young professional professionals launch their careers without college degrees. And so we talked about school and career and professional development, but the camaraderie was so strong. The rapport was so awesome. We enjoyed the conversation so much that they ended up having me back again. And then again and then again and then it start becoming this thing where i'm on there with those guys every three four months and then i told them you know being from chicago jordan had six titles so i need to be on the episode six i need to be on the show six okay. times so i set it as a goal and i got on there six times and we're just joking around about that but after a while it just made sense like to have me on the show more often and and to just team up and and, and talk about this together we had so much fun doing it and so now I'm part of the minimalist and and it's the three of us and it, it's kind of ironic that a, a show that's about less has added another co-host but um it, it also illustrates something that we believe that less isn't about the number of things that you own but it's about the room you make for the stuff that matters the most and so yeah that's how I met those guys and as far as what minimalism is really for me it's about letting go of the physical, psychological and philosophical baggage that weighs you down and holds you back from living a a flourishing life. You know, you you think about the words of, of the Holy Scriptures that say, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that doth so easily beset us. And I think it's beautiful that it includes weight and not just sin, because there are some things that are clearly a matter of right and wrong. And hey, you shouldn't do those things. But What really makes decisions complex is that everything in life can't be made on the basis of what's right and what's wrong. Because once you eliminate what's wrong, sometimes you have to choose between a thousand noble sounding things. Sometimes you have to choose between things that are virtuous sounding, virtuous looking, things that are innocuous. And and you still have to decide what am I going to eliminate? And some things can be holding you down even though they are not objectively wrong. And each of us has to define and decide for ourselves, what are those things that hold us back from becoming the person that God wants us to be? You know, something that I just recently wrote about is is many dreams have been sacrificed unnecessarily at the altar of, it doesn't take all that because so many people want to define for others what level of intentionality, what level of intensity is right for them? And that's ultimately something that each person has to discern for themselves. Uh, one phrase that I really love in the catechism that occurs over and over again, particularly when it talks about things like penance and sacrifice is according to one station in life, according to one station in life. And so for some people, it's about taking a vow of poverty and only owning not, nothing at all. For some people, being a minimalist is about doing what God has called them to do with their six-figure salary, or some people might be millionaires. But ultimately, we have to make sacrifices and choose to let things go based on what we are called to do according to our station in life. So minimalism isn't about the quantity of things that you own. It's about the quality of life that you live. And we live in a culture that tells us that in order to be a player in the game of life, that in order to have status, in order to be somebody, in order to be important or significant, you need this much clout, or you need this many things, or you need this much money. And ultimately, for me, it's it's not about getting your identity from the world or the things of the world, but it's about coming to the world with a sense of identity already established because you get your identity from God ultimately. And then you bring your identity to the world. You make your mark on the world. I mean, that to me is what is represented when when Adam is given the authority to name the animals, to name the elements of creation. There's a sense of expressing our creativity, expressing what God has placed within us by giving identity to the world rather than looking for the world to tell us who we are. And so whether you call it minimalism or not, it's about living intentionally. It's about living from within and it's about living for something more than what you own and not letting your possessions or your job or any of those things tell you who you are but letting how you show up be the expression of who you are
0: amen no i think that's just terrific and i appreciate you sharing that with us and the saints throughout history extol the virtue of detachment um of of self detachment of possessions um you know and all of these different things and i actually want to i grabbed a quote from archbishop fulton sheen who is such a prophet for our times that Mm -hmm. i feel just resonates anytime i listen to you i i've i've thought of archbishop fulton sheen and one of the things that he stated was that you know advertising tries to stimulate our sensuous desires converting luxuries into necessities but it only intensifies man's inner misery (laughs) The business world is bent on creating hungers, which it wears, never satisfy, and thus it adds to the frustrations and broken minds of our times. And so I want to talk about that broken minds because you brought it up of letting go of of the psychological baggage, and I'd love to hear a little bit about you because I feel like... Sure, there's 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 junk and everybody knows the, the physical possessions and the junk and we need to die away from those, but talk to me about the psychological baggage that people carry with them and, and what you would do to, to help overcome that and get rid of that in your life. Right,
2: well, ultimately, it's never about letting go of the things, it's about letting go of the stories that bind us together with things. And whenever someone is at a crossroads where they have to make a decision to say no to something or to let something go, whether it's a way of eating, whether it's something that once provided value in their lives but has now become clutter, whether it's things that someone who used to live in the house possessed and moved away from or passed away and now those things are there and they don't mean anything to you but you might feel guilty about throwing them away or whatever it may be, there's always the question of, what is the story this individual is telling themselves about the things that they believe they need to get rid of or that they are struggling to let go? And really letting go is more about exercising those demons. Letting go is about reframing our relationship to stuff. Letting go is about learning to tell ourselves a different story, a story like, you know, maybe maybe I still do have value without that. Maybe I'm not defined by my job. Maybe my love for this person isn't fully encapsulated in this physical object. Maybe my love for this person is bigger than this particular birthday card or this particular possession. It's sort of like Joshua says in the the uh, the documentary, our memories are not in our things. Our memories are in ourselves. And that's the same for love. That's the same for relationship and all of that stuff. It's funny because when you, when you quoted Bishop Sheen and you talked about, advertising and, and and what they uh, how they influence us to see the world it makes me think about the adversary's greatest power it's his ability to create these illusions that get us to buy into a way of seeing things that is ultimately self-defeating yes. um, i was just reading this morning how st louis de montfort was saying that you know, the devil doesn't really get a whole lot of pleasure when we commit a sin. It's not like he gathers all the devils together and throws a big party like, ha ha, we got this guy to tell a lie, or we got this guy to stumble because a good confession wipes that all away. And if you feel remorse and your heart turns back to God, he doesn't really get a victory there. But what he delights in is using sin as an occasion to get you to see God in a way that makes you turn away from him, and so when you look at the story of the serpent and Eve in Genesis, after that conversation, scriptures say, "And she saw that the fruit of the tree was good to eat." There was a way of seeing that preceded Eve's choice to engage in this self-destructive behavior, or you know, even the the temptation of Christ, where it's he shows him these things, you know, he shows him a way of looking and tries to get our savior to buy into a particular vision. And so consumerism ultimately isn't about the stuff. It isn't about money. It isn't about possessions. It's about a way of looking at the world. And anytime we're struggling with something, it's always about more than just the physical components involved with that struggle. It's about the story that we're telling ourselves. It's about the assumptions that we've accepted as true, the self-defeating beliefs that we've decided to take on and so, and so forth. And so Ultimately, whenever you're working with someone about getting rid of things, yeah, those are the questions that you have to ask. Yeah.
0: Well, and thanks for bringing up St. Louis de Montfort right over my shoulder there. You know, one of my favorite. He's got, oh, yeah. got that statue in the back there. <laughs> uh, you're speaking our language.
1: Yeah, he's, he's my patron saint too. And I was confirmed as a Catholic. That was kind of who I chose as my patron saint. So definitely on the same page there. But uh, Hey man, what,
2: what a grace to even know who that was at that time right like i i feel so blessed to just know who he is and, and to know about his 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 teachings yeah
0: yeah amen, amen nobody asked my opinion but i think he's a doctor of the church just uh to be determined <laughs> so i hope so that'd be great yeah. yeah
1: yeah that would be wonderful but yeah so you know i love this idea of like the the narratives of the story i mean uh narrative is how we how that gives meaning to facts i mean it's the thing that that shapes uh, how we perceive reality, and yet I I see in our culture like uh, the the power of advertising to shape those stories in our minds to tell us what's important. There's just this relentless assault of narratives telling you that this is important, and you don't have it, so your life is incomplete. <laughs> and you know, as much as we can, even be aware of that and we're consciously like maybe trying to resist, it's still like, we just like, like a frog boiling in water in this culture where it's just like, it seeps into our bones almost, where we just feel this restlessness and this discontent at times, um, even without realizing why, like we just, uh, we're not really sure where that comes from. And I guess in your experience, like what is, what is, you know, obviously uh, as Catholics, like we want to to, feed our minds with what's good. And yet it can be this constant battle uh, to challenge and resist those messages from the world. So I guess since you're from your perspective, like what are some of the ways that you found to both be aware of the subtle programming of media and advertising, uh, shaping those implicit values that we have without realizing And How do we become aware of that? And then how do we resist that and kind of substitute those for authentic Narratives, authentic stories that can actually lead to a flourishing life rather than self-defeating stories that the world wants to feed us.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think about the story of of David and Goliath and how it often gets framed mostly in terms of here is the underdog who possessed this uncommon courage, or maybe just faith in God. And what often gets overlooked in the telling of that story is exactly what David's faith was grounded in, you know, when you, when you read about the, the um, uh, how Goliath would show up and he would, he would, tell all of these things about what he was going to do to people. I'm going to rip you apart this way. I'm going to humiliate you in that way. And it wasn't just a one-time event, right? Like if you watch a movie about it, it seems like one day David was walking by and there's this bully giant just picking on everyone. And, you know, the conversation maybe was going on for an hour or something. And David's like, who is this guy? And he just beats him, right? Because David's, you know, confident where others are not. But if you read the scriptures, you see, I believe it was something like 14 days. Like every day, Goliath would come to that spot and he'd feed these people this message of doom and gloom about what he's going to do to them. And they sat there and they took it and they listened. And David wasn't present for any of those conversations. David wasn't around. He wasn't feeding his mind the same things. He wasn't consuming the same content as other people. You know, David was where God had him. David was tending to his sheep doing his work. And, And clearly from what he tells us in the Psalms, was meditating on God's laws. And so David's faith wasn't just an expression of willpower or personal confidence. It was the the byproduct of having different rituals than the people who were occupied by fear. And and so if we want to behave differently from everyone else, if we want to think differently from everyone else, if we want to experience power and self-control in places where others struggle, we have to give ourselves over to different rituals. And sometimes we see ritual as a mere expression of already existing belief, but it's so much more than that. It's also um, a set of tools that orient us towards the world differently. Our rituals transform us. And when scriptures tell us, "Be let um, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like everyone else. Don't think like everyone else. Don't behave like everyone else, but let your souls be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Well, what is it that does that? It's the liturgical, sacramental and devotional life of the church. By participating in these rituals, we're not just expressing an already existing faith, but we are placing ourselves before God so that through the sanctifying grace that is offered to us through the church, we can accomplish what is not possible on our own. We can be transformed. We can be changed and empowered to do different things. You know, if you think about it in terms of like um, like exercise, if you haven't lifted weights before and you try to go to the weight room and, and bench press, the best you'll probably be able to do is something like the empty pole, right? And, and And maybe you can't do more than that. Okay, that's fine. That's where you are right now. But if you continue to do that, and you add just a little bit more weight incrementally over time through that process, through that discipline, you'll eventually be able to do what you can't do today directly, right? Because that process will ultimately transform you. Well, in a much bigger way than that, the liturgical sacramental devotional life of the Catholic church supernaturally transforms us. It reorders our disordered appetites. Um, You guys know this better than I do, but I, I love how um i believe it's the catechism referring to saint thomas aquinas who says that sin has the effect of darkening the intellect and diminishing the will while well, sanctifying grace has the effect of undoing that those uh those effects of concupiscence sanctifying grace has the ability to transform us in that positive way and so i think it's accepting the fact that we can't do this on our own um in a world that just doesn't like the idea that such a category of things exists, I think it's humbling ourselves and realizing, look, we have no hope. We're so easily deceived. We're like sitting ducks. This is why we go to mass. This is why we pray the rosary. This is why we go to confession. Not because we're good Catholics, but because we can't help but be terrible Catholics apart from what these things and more offers us. So that's how we get out. That's how we escape. That's how we think differently.
0: Sam, I think you're. Oh,
1: I just said I love that one. I think when you were talking, I was thinking about adoration, and like what a radically countercultural, non-consumptive thing to do—to go and just sit silently in front of this <clears throat> host and just be present. Mm. Like, like what a reorientation of your values and what rewriting that narrative ultimately of of what's valuable in your life. So I love that.
2: When you bring up adoration, it makes me think of the woman with the issue of blood, right? Who's pressing through the crowd. And she says, if I can but touch the hem of his garments, I will be made whole, right? And and you you think about what you have to do to touch the hem of a garment. She doesn't say if I can touch his shoulder, if I can touch his neck or his ear. Like, I mean, you got to get down, right? To touch the hem. Like, you've got to get down. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to bring yourself low. And she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole, and Jesus filling feeling the power going out from him who touched me. And when he identifies the woman, he says, your faith has made you whole. And how much more can we experience God's power to make us whole when we have the real presence of Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity made available to us through the blessed sacrament, not only through the Eucharistic nourishment that's available to us through the mass, but also through Eucharistic devotion in the tabernacle or Eucharistic adoration. You know um i i had a priest tell me that you cannot come before the eucharist on a regular basis with an open heart and not be transformed and and we have things like that right that you know i i I tell people that catholicism is is kind of like a gym where you know imagine you grow up um watching football watching basketball you know, reading stories about people in the Hall of Fame. And you're like, oh man, that was a great quarterback and he could throw the ball so well. That was a great pitcher. That was a great basketball player. And, you know, you you learn to admire these people. You learn to be impressed by these people, but you have no vocabulary for how you become like these people. All you can do is just kind of look up to them. And then one day your friend takes you to some place and you walk in and you see all this exercise equipment and you say, what the heck is this place? And he says, this is the gym. And you go, a gym? Like, what do you do here? And he says, well, all of those great athletes that you've read about, that you've watched on television, this is how you become like them. These are the tools that they used to achieve that level of greatness. And that same level of excellence is also available to you. And I feel like the the Catholic church is like, it's the gym for spirituality. It's the gym for sainthood. When you come to Holy Mother Church, You have the tools given to us by our Lord himself, the tools of transformation that can make us the people that God wants us to be. And that's just so that's so amazing, man. That's so inspiring. You know, we're not just here to try to think positive thoughts or to just maybe read a few scriptures every day, hoping that we can use enough willpower to conform ourselves to the life scripture describes. No, we can lay ourselves before God in very concrete, practical ways. And we can be supernaturally transformed. And that that's what it means to not just have a personal relationship with Jesus, but an incarnational relationship with Jesus, a relationship that is born out, not only in the body, but in every aspect of our lives occurring here in space and time. And we get to experience a God that isn't trying to rescue us from the world, but that is redeeming us and redeeming the world through us. Man, that's powerful.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's just incredible, and I I love hearing you talk about this. And you you laid this next com- or this next question I have up perfectly, um, because uh, you speak with a lot of clarity about the church, um, almost as if you've been a Catholic for many 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 years. But that's not the case, and I think this is just a perfect time for you to talk a little bit about TK and about your your conversion story. I think it's really important for our uh, listeners to hear that. I was a cradle Catholic. I've come along to realize that I'll never write like Thomas Aquinas does. I'll never think like him, but I've got him to to stand on the shoulders. I'll never be able to discern God's will like uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola was capable of doing and and instructing, but I've got his shoulders to stand on to help guide me along that Um, And Sam, though, was a convert uh, to the faith, uh, just like yourself. And so I'd love to hear your conversion story, um, because, again, you're speaking now as if not only do you believe, but also you've adopted this stuff for, for years. Again, not the case. You're not even Catholic for a full year. Am I correct?
2: That's right. I was received into the church in February of 2022.
0: Thanks be to God. And uh, it's just such a such an incredible blessing to have you on the show. So why don't you share your conversion story a little bit about your your youth and your your history um, and then what it was about Catholicism that aligned to the thoughts that you obviously had been working on and creating and developing in your professional life and and how it was just that that synthesis or, or completion of what you were searching for. I'd love to hear all that. Absolutely. Just one quick remark on, on the saints and being like
2: them. Yeah. Uh, I, like you, will, will never write like St. Thomas Aquinas. And, and there may be very few people who will ever kind of get to that level. But what's another amazing thing about our faith is the diversity of saints, the different types of personalities and people who went on to, to become these amazing icons. Like if you if you take a St. Thomas Aquinas... But then you take a St. Veronica, right? You take a St. John Bosco, who was much more a man of action than theory, right? Uh, and then you take a St. Genesius, who left us with no writings. You have very different types of personalities. You know, my my confirmation saint is St. Monica, and I see no evidence from history that St. Monica would be able to handle her own son, St. Augustine, in a philosophical debate, St. Augustine would probably run circles around his mom, right? right. And and, and I've even read that St. Monica, because she wasn't very literate, she would not only go to mass as often as possible, but she would sometimes attend funerals just so she could hear the scriptures because that was the only time that she could get it, right? And at the same time, two different personality types and that super intellectual one owes in many ways, his journey to his own mom. And so Amen. there's plenty of room in God's kingdom for each of us to be the unique kind of saint that God created us to be. We're never going to be St. Thomas Aquinas. We're never going to be St. Monica. We're never going to be St. Augustine or any of these people, but we will be a saint of God's, of God's making according to the way that he wants us to be. So, okay, my background. So I grew up in the church and my father is a pastor uh, I'm blessed to have my parents still with me. I, I you know I I should say that for me um I I refuse by God's grace I say I refuse to allow the fact of my having been Protestant be the most important interesting and impactful part of my story. I am happy to talk about my story. I'm unashamed completely. But I I look at it also in terms of sports, you know, the the great teams, you know, uh, Tom Brady doesn't celebrate making the playoffs. No, you know, Um, you know, the, the great teams, when they clinch a playoff berth, they don't act like they won the championship because they understand that it's about the Super Bowl, man. It's about it's about winning the title. It's about winning the World Series. That's great that we clinched the playoff berth. That is awesome because we can't get where we're trying to go without that. But mm. but this ain't the time to be popping champagne. Right. Like we pop champagne when we win that Super Bowl title, that World Series, that NBA championship. And in a similar way, I I don't see having been Protestant as something that's going to get me into heaven. You know, so um I pray that by God's grace, I do not lean on my ability to critique Protestantism as something that's capable of saving my soul. It's about becoming a saint for all of us. And uh, and, and I pray that ultimately I can persevere to the end. Um, also, um, for me, being Catholic is about being Catholic. It's, it's not about being non-Protestant. You know, it's like imagine you fall in love with an amazing woman and you all you do is talk to her about how um, how much trouble your ex used to give you. Um, or, or every time she says something nice, you, you, go into some conversation about, yeah, you know, I love that you do that because my ex, she never did that. It's like, no, man, at some point, at some point you want to celebrate who, what, who, who God has given you and focus your attention on that. Right. And so, um, for me, that's the exciting thing that that's what gives meaning to the story, but in fairness, let's talk about the past. All right. So my father's a pastor. I grew up in a Pentecostal home. And um, very charismatic church, all black church, inner city, Chicago. The name of the church uh, is Mount Carmel.
0: Hmm.
2: Um, and um, yeah, that, that that's kind of interesting, right? <laughs> and, and so, I mean, I love my parents, man. And they're still with me today. My parents taught, my brothers and I, uh, we, we read the scriptures together as a family every night. And we prayed together as a family every night. Uh, my mom and my dad both spoke very often. Uh, at their church and at other churches um all throughout the day my mom would have um Christian radio on so we're constantly hearing Christian music or or Christian preachers and things like that and um they taught us to love God. they taught us that ultimately nothing matters more than than God's kingdom and and putting that first and um I I, I think, I, th- I think the most important things they taught us, at least from a professional standpoint, is that, you know, God has created every one with the purpose, and your number one job is to chase after that, to pursue that, because that's where God's grace is going to be. You know, when you, when you think about miracles, miracles are never given as magic tricks; they're they're always given within the context of supporting God's purpose. So, how do you get the parting of the Red Sea? And what separates that from a magic trick? Well, you got a guy named Moses and a guy that God creates for a purpose. And God reveals his purpose to that man. And that man walks in obedience to his purpose. And as he's following God's purpose for his life, he gets to a point in his journey where there's some obstacle that he couldn't anticipate. And the only way he can fulfill God's purpose on his life is if God supernaturally intervenes and makes something happen that Moses himself couldn't happen. And so that's why you get the miracle. God's miracles always uphold and support his purposes. And so if you want to experience the power of God in your life, you've got to find the purposes of God and follow his purposes. And that's something that they instilled in us. And I've, I've, I've always taken that very seriously in terms of career. You know, I've never thought about career, mostly in terms of what's gonna make me the most money, or any of those types of things, but always trying to discern where would God have me um, and, and that's that's not necessarily an easy thing to do, because even if the God part is easy, the human part Amen. Right, we just have such an amazing ability to complicate stuff right
0: yeah
2: um, and, and our own sinfulness gets in the way. Okay, so I would say at different stages of life my the the faith that my parents imparted in me you know waxed and waned at different stages you know it flourished at other stages it kind of ran dry and um the, the most noteworthy stage however was when i when i went to college um you know um, af- after kind of having um some some battles with doubt and so on and 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 reclaiming my christian faith I I really participated very heavily in an evangelical non-denominational Bible church. And it was during that time where I just really got intensely interested in in the life of prayer. I had read a book by Ian Bounds called um, Prayer, The Mightiest Force in the World. And he convinced me that prayer truly was the mightiest force in the world. And I thought to myself, well, if there's a force this powerful, I wanna give my life over to it. And so I started to read a lot of things on prayer and the funny thing I noticed is that although I'm not reading any Catholic books, everyone who's saying anything interesting about prayer, they're all quoting Catholics. And this was quite funny to me because I, I went to Catholic elementary school and my parents moved from the inner city of Chicago to the suburbs of Westchester in Illinois. Uh, around fifth grade for me, I went to a school called Divine Infant High School. I went to a Catholic high school. But all the Catholicism stuff, that's in the background. Because when, you know, at least for me, I'm thinking about fitting in, I'm thinking about all kinds of things, but not about the faith in that way. And so I'm I'm actually intrigued by this. And I go, wow, some of these Catholics have something that's worth looking into. That's surprising. You know, I, I guess some of these Catholics know what they're talking about. And so I started to gravitate more in the direction of some of the Catholic writings on prayer. No thought whatsoever of be, actually becoming Catholic, And I, that's when I discovered St. Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain. And that was really riveting, you know, and it really got me thinking. Um, There was one point where I almost put the book down just because it was, it was scare me a little bit. You know, maybe the the implications of some of the things he was saying.
0: Amen. But I read that, I just, likewise, I just want to affirm that. I read that and I thought to myself so frequently how if I, if I could write just a paragraph this well and this powerful, I, I'd die with a smile on my face. it It's, it's, it's moving <laughs> and, and it's powerful. So I appreciate you sharing that. Sorry yeah.
2: to interrupt you now. No, it's okay. This is good stuff, man. And then there came a point where, because I'm reading all this amazing stuff about prayer from a Catholic perspective, I'm encountering um, Teresa Avila. Um, you know, um, it was Evelyn Underhill's book, mysticism, the nature and development of spiritual consciousness that turned me on to the interior castle, which then turned me on to the writings of St. John of the cross and then Catherine Sienna. And so at this point, I'm just kind of like, man, I, I need to see what's there that's producing this because there's clearly something in the Catholic soil that's producing these beautiful flowers of prayer. And so I started to you know I started with the book called Born Fundamentalist Born Again Catholic um evangelical is not enough liturgy and the, finding god through liturgy and the sacraments you know uh, more christianity a lot of your basic catholic apologetic books right um answering a lot of the basic kind of um hang ups that that most evangelical protestants would have and I, and I started to go down that that rabbit hole and then I um discovered Eve's Congar's tradition and traditions. And and I'm starting to to really delve into this stuff. And there comes a point where at this time I'm working night shift um, at an assisted living facility from like 11 uh, p.m. to 7 a.m. And there's a church called St. Augustine's, a Catholic church. And whenever I get off work, I would go to their morning mass and I would just sit in the back and I would just enjoy how peaceful it felt. You know, I didn't really know what was going on, but you know, there are only like five people there in the mornings. And so nobody's bothering me. I don't feel like I stand out. It didn't feel weird, like maybe being at a church on Sunday would be. And to this day, I encourage people who are inquiring into the Catholic faith. I say, go to go to daily mass because the, the people that are there are absolutely gonna be legit. They're gonna know their stuff. They're gonna be dedicated, but also you won't feel so overwhelmed. You won't feel like, odd or left out or anything like that, you know? Uh, But anyway, I started going to the morning masses and eventually through doing that, I started to meet priests and I started to have conversations with them. They were very liberal with their time in terms of just having coffee, answering questions and things like that. And it got to a point, and and I also discovered as I'm delving into church history, I also discovered orthodoxy. And so now I'm dividing my time between going to liturgy and Vespers at different orthodox churches um and then also going to mass at the catholic church and there came a point where i just knew that whatever i was to do next i knew that i was no longer protestant at heart i knew that i wanted to believe and worship as the ancients did and i knew that i wanted the historical faith and you know i, I was going back and forth with you know orthodox and and catholic arguments about the magisterium the papacy and all that stuff and when 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 i realized that it's going to be one of these directions um you know I, I i was just honest about that and that's when things began to get really difficult for me because i went from being a very loved a very respected popular youth leader at my church mm. to being a guy that's man This brother is a great example of how the devil can use anybody, you know, um, this brother is a great example, no matter who you are, the devil can deceive you. And at that age too, that was very, that was very hard on the ego, you know, that, that hurt a lot. And there were a number of young people at the church at that time who saw my journey and they became curious about it. And some people are like, well, I want to, I want to see what you're saying. I, you know, I, I disagree with you, but I want to see what you're saying. So maybe they would come to mass with me or they would come to Vespers with me or or they meet up with me for coffee and ask me questions. And I, you know, I I'd talk about my journey and where I was coming from. And there were some people who maybe were brought up Catholic, but had found a relationship with God through Protestant churches. And they started to rethink some things and go, you know, I never had it explained to me like that. Right. I never knew. That the faith of my childhood was so rich. And some of those people began to inquire on their own into the Catholic faith and so on. And so, you know, I I, I just became, you know, public enemy number one in that way. And I cannot pretend that I handle that with humility. Mm -hmm. I cannot pretend that I handle that with love or generosity or empathy. I handle it with a whole lot of pride, a whole lot of bitterness, a whole lot of resentment and a whole lot of anger. And it got to the point where, you know, if someone would question me or someone would would say, you know, I want to sit down and talk with you, right? And I go in there and I put the boxing gloves on and and, and I would try to throw punches. And and I felt like, all right, you're going to question me. I'm going to play offense. I'm going to question you. Where's (laughs) the evidence for that? Show me this in the Bible. And it was just ugly, man. It just wasn't good at all. But I became so overwhelmed by that. So overwhelmed and so fatigued. Did I just got to a point where I just said, screw it. I don't want any of this.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: This, this is the problem with organized religion. You know, this is the problem with dogmatism. None mm-hmm. of this stuff matters anyway, man. All that matters is Jesus. And I don't even care anymore. I, I don't want anything to do with anybody's church, wow. you know? Um, and, I was just over church, and I already felt a little burnout anyway. I was like, you know, I'm already going all these different services. I'm just done. I'm just gonna take a break, man. I I want the God that I can experience at the beach. I want the God that I can experience on a quiet walk, alone on a college campus. I want that God. And fortunately, God is still present in those spaces, and God still can reach us in those spaces but make no mistake about it, man. My heart was hardened and I wish it was as noble sounding as the way I'm telling it, because I'm telling it like it was just a combination of intellectual confusion and and social harassment that overwhelmed me. But the, the, the truth of the matter is it was my own sinfulness. You know, if my heart was pure and if I were willing to let go of everything I needed to let go of to follow God, that stuff wouldn't have mattered. the the truth is, I was not capable of bending my will in the direction of acting on what I knew to be true, because that power doesn't come from man. Hmm. And I needed grace. I went on a long hiatus. And it was almost as if I forgot that that part of my life ever even happened. I mean, I really mean that it was like, that was just buried somewhere deep in my subconscious. And I I lived a peaceful life without thinking about it. And I just focused more on personal development, focused more on self-improvement, focused more on psychological health, focused more on my career. And I started to do pretty well, man. And I still had a respect for Jesus. Um, I just didn't feel the need to be in anybody's church. you And I still occasionally read the scriptures. I just didn't feel a need to be part of anything, any, anyone's rituals or anything like that. And I felt great about it. Mm. And the odd thing is there came a point where this haunting question began to emerge. And it's so weird because the premise of the question is based on something so obvious. I don't know how I missed it for so long. But the question was, what did Christ mean when he said upon this rock, I will build my church? And it occurred to me something that is laughably obvious to everyone, which is the church is not some voluntary assembling of people who have like beliefs based on an idea they came up with. The church is not a man-made idea. The church is actually Jesus's idea Mm -hmm. that we don't see the concept mentioned at all until Jesus brings it up. And it's something that he created. And if I'm going to say that I respect him, I need to at least have an informed opinion on what I think he meant by his church. What is that? And not only that, as I'm looking around at all the crazy things happening in the world and all the debates that are going on about which man should we place our faith in? Which political party should we place our faith in? I realize that, you know, there's not a single promise in the Bible that America's going to last. There's not a single promise in the Bible that Biden or Trump, that the left or right is going to save us. And I know that people feel pretty passionate about that stuff, but there just aren't any promises I can find in, in holy tradition that say anything about which side of the political spectrum is going to save us. But there is a promise that's given to one institution and one institution alone, a promise of indefectibility a promise that this would be the institution through which Christ would redeem the world. And it's the church. I better figure out what he meant by that. And it's like all of a sudden nothing became more important than the ecclesiological question. You know, what is the church? Because whatever it is, that's what I need to be a part of. If I want to be saved, that's what I need to be a part of. If I want to be part of the real revolution that's going to change the world. Because although God uses anyone and everyone who is willing to cooperate with the graces that he provides, at the end of the day, it's not coming from the left or the right. It's not, it's not coming from the self-proclaimed political saviors. It's not coming from the good guy in office. It's coming from the kingdom. It's coming from the church that Jesus established. The gates of hell won't prevail against that.
0: Hmm.
2: And everyone is infiltrated with sin. You know, no matter what political promises they make, everyone is infiltrated with sin. There's only one institution that can really deal with the problems of the world. And and so I I really began to to return to that. And I began to wrestle with that question a little bit. And uh, funny enough, I ended up hearing from an old um, grade school and high school classmate, Elizabeth Robinson, who is now Elizabeth Young. And she reached out to me and said, hey, my husband, Ryan and I, we have a camp called Camp Veritas, where we work with Catholic high school students. And we, you know, we, we bring them to this beautiful space. And it's all about, you know, helping helping young people learn to love Jesus more and so on. And she was like, I would love for you to come talk about economics there. And, and she was like, because um, a lot of Catholics are just terrible with economics. And so we had a conversation about that. And, I'm you know, no idea what was going to happen at this event. I said, yeah, I'd be happy to, to go do it, you know. And so I go there. And unlike a lot of the events I speak at where maybe I stay in a hotel that's a few miles away from the university or the uh, the conference center, this was way out in like the boondocks, you know, and, and so we're, I'm on the campgrounds and I'm staying in, um, I'm staying in the same building as, as a bunch of monks and, uh, a bunch of Franciscan monks. And, uh, that lent itself to some pretty awesome and, and interesting conversations, you know, and they, they had me speak, um, In a space where the Eucharist was, I had never even heard of Eucharistic Mm. adoration or any of that stuff at this time. And when I came back to my room at the end of the night, as I was, you know, getting ready to prepare for bed after having spent that time, the Eucharist, it was like there was some, there was like a punch from the inside. And and this is the part of my story. I'm just going to be fully transparent and say. I'm truly embarrassed to tell this part of the story, because what I want to tell you is I I want to say after reading 1000 books on all the different topics, I came to this conclusion, but I already have that phase of my journey where I read a ton of books and that didn't do it, man. That didn't do it. Um, So I admit embarrassingly, I'm alone in my room. This is the part that makes me look irrational. This is the part that just makes me look like a fool, right? And I hate this part of my testimony, but I'm alone in my room and I feel a punch from within and I hear it loud and clear, you're Catholic. And even though I heard it loud and clear, I laughed and just dismissed that as a crazy thought that happening happened to be occurring in my head. And I felt it again, you're Catholic. And this time, I just felt the doubts fall away, and I've explained it this way before. I, I was I was talking with Michael Lofton from Reason and Theology about this, and and this is this is the example that I use of um, the difference between curiosity and skepticism. Imagine if my wife and I have dinner plans at six o'clock, and she shows up at seven o'clock, and when she walks in, I look at her angrily, angrily, and I say, "Where were you?" Okay. That's a question that she has to answer a certain kind of way in order for the two of us to be good, because the tone is very antagonistic. Mm. On the other hand, suppose she comes in and I say, hey, love, welcome back. Good to see you. What were you up to today? That's a question that she doesn't have to answer a particular way in order for us to be good, because the question is coming from a space of, I just want to get to know you. I just want to know what's on your heart. I just want to know what's on your mind. It's still a question that I don't know the answer to, but it's arising out of a space of curiosity and connection rather than defensiveness and antagonism. Mm. And, I, and I felt energetically all of my questions about the faith shift from that antagonistic skeptical mode to that curious desire for connection mode. And I still got a lot of questions, but they're all curiosities now. And I read more than i used to and i try to learn more than i used to but none of it comes from this space of anxiety or defensiveness or fear or even trying to prove anything to anyone it's about deepening my relationship with god deepening my faith deepening my deepening my understanding of holy mother church and so anyway i knew in that moment that that it was over for me and uh and i I, i cried when i was in that uh in that space uh, because I, I just knew it was over. I, I just knew life was about to to be different, and um, and so yeah, everything else is just detailed from that. I mean, we could always wow. make the story a little bit longer, but that's
0: that's how we got here, man. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's just powerful.
1: That's beautiful. When you know, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, it sounds like you know the the there's there's a kind of knowing, a uh, intuition that's that's deeper sometimes than those those rational strivings and wrestlings that you just you can't explain and yet it's there's no it's no less certainty than than some logical deduction um and and uh thank you for sharing that It's a truly beautiful story and um you know we could go on for for probably hours more just uh, talking to you about different things a uh, such a fascinating guy and i'm sure uh we'll have you back on in the near future to um, talk about I'd love to have you on to talk about, you know, some of your economic education, obviously, yes. because you're right, Catholics can be kind of bad at that. <laughs> and uh and yet it's a very important aspect of life that um that we shouldn't neglect, uh, especially uh when eggs are, you know, five dollars a dozen and and gas is over three dollars and you know all that good stuff. So I'd love, I'd love to hear your wisdom on that. But, but I guess just in, in my final question is you know, you, we kind of started the episode off talking about removing those obstacles, psychological, um, material, mm-hmm. or otherwise, to living a flourishing life. Mm-hmm. And I would just love to know, like, first of all, what what to you is this flourishing life? What is a fl- what's What's brought you that joy and that? That freedom in your life, and and what have you kind of had to let go of to get, to get to that place, but but really the ultimate question, just being like, what is that flourishing life for you, and and uh, you know, because uh, it's a it's a very individual question. So,
2: mm. Mm. when I first created the Revolution of One program through fee, one of the, one of the things I, one of the early thoughts I wrote down was that I'm not merely interested in creating a society in which everyone feels free. I'm also interested in creating individuals who can learn how to live freely in any kind of society. And the interesting thing about freedom, and there's a lot of talk about that and there are a lot of emotions being felt around that feeling like freedoms are being threatened, freedoms are being attacked in all different areas of life is there is a kind of freedom that, there is a kind of freedom that is unconditional, a kind of freedom that the world does not give, a kind of freedom that is a pre-political given, and a kind of freedom that the world cannot take away, although it can be lost but it can't be lost by the world taking it away from us independently of our own choosing. And for me, I think a flourishing life is about living in a consciousness of that freedom and imparting an awareness of it to others so that we become the kind of people who live with courage and live with conviction and we don't live with a sense of our destiny being in the hands of political leaders or worldly authority figures. Do these people matter in some sense of the word? Yeah, sure. Do their choices affect us in some sense of the word? Yeah, sure. But it can also be said that as Catholics, when we handle our business, by submitting to God's business, most of that stuff is rendered irrelevant. There's just nothing that anybody in the world is talking about or doing that is capable of being a threat more than we're capable of turning the world upside down. You know, um, it's sort of like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's it, it's really it's really teaching other people and working with people in a way that that helps them focus on on the power that God has made available to us through the church. More on that than on worrying about the latest idiotic thing that some celebrity said or the latest threatening policy that some politician proposed. Um, Who was it? Um, I I have this quote here from, um, let's see here. It is, oh man, come on, come on because i'm on the air i can't find it now but yeah. I, I believe it was saint pope Pius the 10th who said that um if if a million families or 10 million families prayed the rosary the whole world would be transformed right what what is that source of power that renders all other threats irrelevant you know, that that to me, teaching that and embodying that is, is a flourishing life. Can, can I tell, I, I'll be quick here, two minutes. Please. Uh, uh, in the form of a story. There's a story of this um, uh, great king who possessed great wealth. And he had three sons and a very loyal slave. The sons were reckless and irresponsible and they never heeded their father's wisdom. They never helped him or anything. The slave, on the other hand, was very faithful to the father. When the father died, the sons found out that they were not included in the estate. The father had left everything to his slave. However, because he was a merciful father, he did leave one stipulation in his will. And he said, I will allow each of my sons to obtain one of my possessions before the estate is given over to my slave. And they had to go from the oldest to the youngest. And so the oldest son said, I will take my father's throne as a symbol of his power. And he receives the throne of the father. The other, the, the middle son says, I will take my father's crown as a symbol of his royalty, as a, as a, a symbol of his splendor. And he receives the crown. The last son thinks for a little bit. And then he says, I will take my father's slave, because by possessing the slave, I will then own all else that my father owns." And everyone was shocked by the discernment that allowed him to make that choice. And I think that story is a powerful illustration of two very different ways of thinking. One way of thinking is saying, I'm gonna reach after power so that I can be able to get by and make the most of my life. And then there's another way of thinking that says, I'm going to pursue that form of power by which and through which all other forms of power are obtained. I believe that Holy Mother Church and her liturgical sacramental devotional life represents that latter form of power. And we live in a world where everyone is competing with one another for economic power, competing with one another for social media influencer power, for financial power, and just trying to get whatever they can to have a secure life when what's been made available to us is a power which if we possess, all else is obtained. According to St. Alphonsus Liguori, the church applies the words of Lady Wisdom to Mary where she says, by me, kings reign. We have an option, man. We've got something available to us That just opens the door to possibilities, unlike anything this world can conceive. To me, being conscious of that and orienting one's life around that. That's what a flourishing life is, there you have
0: it. Amen, man, you heard it from TK Coleman. We are so grateful for you joining us. I'm gonna put all your Instagram, all your uh, your website fee, all of those different things in the show notes. We're definitely gonna have you back. I'm just really grateful for you joining us today. Hey man, I'm, I'm really
2: grateful for you guys having me. Thank you so much. This has been fun.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Well, as we end each of our episodes.
1: Be a man, be a saint.